You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I want to begin this morning by talking briefly about the Church of Laodicea. Now, the Church of Laodicea was planted by a guy named Epaphras. He was a native of Colossae, one of the Apostle Paul's disciples. And um, that church was planted probably around about 50 AD. And it was very similar to the Church of Colossae. It was about 10 miles away. And we assume that it was just sort of like a good, strong, healthy, God-honoring, God-glorifying church. Paul wrote them a letter um, we, we've lost it to history. It's no longer extant, but, it's, but he wrote them a letter. He was ministering to them, and we assume that they were a pretty strong, healthy church. Now, if you assume, as I do, that the book of Revelation was written early, probably the mid, um, mid-60s, mid to late 60s A.D., we know from what John says, so remember they had the, the letters to the seven churches that John wrote from Christ to the churches? One of those churches was to the church of Laodicea. So about 15 to 18 years after this church was planted, it had become lukewarm. And the Lord says to them, I feel like just spitting you out of my mouth. They had lost their passion for God. They had lost their enthusiasm for Christ. They had become nominal. They become lukewarm. They become dispassionate about the gospel. Now, the story of the church of Laodicea is not unique in history. It's not an aberration, I don't think. And this should scare us. I think what happened to the church of Laodicea is the tendency of all churches. I think the tendency of all churches is to spiritually atrophy. So Paul Little's first law of church dynamics is that things go from hot and passionate for the Lord to cold and dispassionate, unless we are very, very careful. Unless we're very, very careful. I remember years ago, Cindy and I had a friend. He was an airline pilot, and he, he took me up in his little plane. And he flew out over Lake Ontario. And he said, do you want to try flying? So Cindy and, and Lois were in the back seat, and I'm in the front seat with Mike. And he says, well, just grab the, grab the controls, and you can fly. So we're flying over Lake Ontario, and everything was wonderful. And all of a sudden, I realized that I'm looking at nothing but water. And the plane had just kind of gone like this. And you don't, really, you don't really feel it. You don't really sort of sense it. But all of a sudden, you realize that you're going down. And that's the way it is with churches. That's the way it is with churches unless the people of those churches are really, really cautious. Church history is littered with examples of people and churches who had been faithful and became unfaithful. Church of Laodicea is an example Demas betrayed Paul, Judas betrayed Jesus, and the church throughout history has betrayed her Lord repeatedly. I come come from a denomination that when I joined it way back in a previous century was passionate for the gospel. Penal substitutionary atonement, a literal understanding of of hell, um, a commitment to inspiration and inerrancy, Um, a literal creation story. We believed all those things. They were sort of foundational to what we believe. 30 years later, to a great extent, we had abandoned many of those principles. And that denomination continues to jettison some of those fundamental 
really critically important beliefs. So how does it happen? How does an individual or a church go from passionate to dispassionate? How do you go from hot to lukewarm? The answer is it's not an overnight decision. You don't wake up one day and decide, I'm going to become dispassionate about my faith. I'm going to become cold in my relationship to Jesus. The way it happens is a slow, progressive, incremental process. Many little decisions lead to that conclusion. It's not a choice. It's a series of little choices that move us almost imperceptibly away from orthodoxy and faithfulness into nominalism and compromise and unfaithfulness. And this is what was happening in Israel during the time when Malachi wrote, over the decades since the people of Israel had returned from Babylon, the successive waves, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the passion and the commitment that was so obvious had begun to cool. Zeal for God was evaporating and they were sliding into nominalism and compromise. And so God raised up a prophet, Malachi, his servant, to share a message of God's displeasure with Israel and to challenge Israel to end their nominalism, to end their dispassionate worship of God and to come back to a place of faithfulness, to repent, essentially. The message of Malachi, which was probably presented about 2,500 years ago, is, is so critical for us. We need to hear this message today. It's so easy to become nominal. It's so easy to become compromised in our walk with God, half-hearted and lukewarm, and not even know that we're there. Apathy and lukewarmness are not easily diagnosed in our souls, right? It's hard to know where we're at. And so this morning, I'd like to show you sort of six steps that led Israel to where they eventually got to. How many of you guys remember Jeff Foxworthy? Remember the comedian Jeff Foxworthy? He's a Christian guy, and he's pretty funny. And he's, he does this thing like you, you may be a redneck if. Like if, if, if you go out to cut your grass and you find a car, you may be a redneck. Okay, wasn't that funny? If, if your dad walks you to school because you're both in the same grade, you may be a redneck. If you, take ch if you, if you make change in the offering plate... You may be a redneck or you may be lukewarm. I'm not sure which. But, so I want to kind of do that this morning. I, I want to just sort of, I, I just want to ask this question. If you, fill in the blank, you may be lukewarm. So the first one is this. If you have forgotten your primary identity, you may be lukewarm. Look how he begins in verse 10. Have we not all one father? Malachi asked. Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Malachi says to these people, he says, folks, we have one father. God created us. We are the children of God. We are the people of God. We are the Israel of God. God called us. He created us. And we're part of this magnificent thing that God is doing in history. Wake up. Look at who you are. Remember who you are. God has created us, and he has made us family. And yet they were being unfaithful to one another. They were being unfaithful to God. They had forgotten their fundamental, basic identity as the people of God. And I think for many of us, this is where lukewarmness begins. We forget that God has saved us and put us into his body. 
We don't, un, we don't look at ourselves fundamentally the way that we need to. When we think about ourselves, the first thing that we think is that, hey, I'm not a Christian. I'm a plumber, or I'm a teacher, or I run a business, or I'm a husband. And all those things are important. All those things are vital. All those things are necessary. But at the basis of who you are, when you strip it all away, you are a blood-bought child of God who has been redeemed by the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit, and he has engrafted you into the body of Christ, and that's your identity. That's who you are. God made you for himself, and he made you for his church. That's who we are. We are interrelated. We're not autonomous. We're family. God has saved us. He has bound us together in this thing that we call the church. And so why, why are some of us lukewarm? How, how do we get there? I think one of the answers is, or perhaps the first answer, is that we, we forget our identity. We forget that God has miraculously transformed us by the working of his Holy Spirit, and he has plugged us into this thing that we call the body of Christ. And it's critical that that's how we see ourselves. All those other things that I mentioned, they're important, they're critical. It's necessary that we understand ourselves through that lens. But fundamentally, we've got to see ourselves as called out, chosen people of God who have been saved by the work of the Holy Spirit and engrafted into the body of Christ. That's why this is so critical. This helps us, it reminds us every single Sunday that this is my family, this is who I am, this is my tribe, these are my people, this is the ethos in which God has called me to live, these are the values, this is the value system, this is the culture and the society in which God has placed me. This defines me, you see. The church defines us. The fact that you go to work in a factory doesn't ultimately define you. The fact that even you're a husband or a wife doesn't ultimately define you. What ultimately defines you is that in the grace of God, he chose you, and he sent his Holy Spirit rushing into your life like a mighty rushing wind, and he woke you up from the dead, and he saved you, and he brought you to himself, and he has engrafted you into this thing we call Harvest Niagara. That's who you are. And if you forget that, if you forget that, what happens is that very quickly, this loses its priority. This loses its significance. And other things begin to take precedence when the church gathers. I was about to say Sunday morning, but I, sh I, I, did, I, did, I shouldn't have said that. When the church gathers, when the doors are opened, we come together. So whether it's a prayer meeting, whether it's a Sunday morning, whether it's a Sunday night, whenever the church gathers... It calls to us because this is us. This is us. It's who we are. Israel was a theocracy. We are a body. We're the body of Christ. And when this ceases to be a priority for us, when this ceases to define us, when this ceases to be our identity, it isn't a long way to nominalism. So, I want to ask you the question, Where, how committed are you to the body of Christ? This has been a, a, a horrific 15 months. There's tons of people who have decided, as a consequence of COVID, I can do, I can do church via Zoom or via some other medium. I can, I can do it over the internet just fine. And it's not true. 
We are a family. We need each other. We need to be here because this defines us. That was the question that Malachi, that God was asking the people. Think about who you are, folks. You're the children of God. You're God's people. And God's people always have an identity together in fellowship with one another, living in intimacy together. You don't go to church. You are the church. You are the body of Christ. Don't let the cult of individualism, don't let laziness rob you of the truth that God has made you for this. He has made you for the church. He has gifted you. He has called you. He has placed you here very strategically, very purposefully. He's put you into this body, and he wants you to see yourself in that light. So see yourself that way. Let the church remain a priority. I'm glad to hear this morning. I'm thrilled that you're here this morning. I'm thrilled to see so many of you here this morning. Don't let this ever become second place in your life. This is who you are, basically, fundamentally. At the core of your identity, you are the church. You are a member of the body of Christ, blood-bought, incorporated into this thing by the Spirit of God. Let that define you. Secondly, you may be lukewarm, secondly, if you allow God to be number two in your life. If you allow God to be number two in your life, look what he says. Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Now, what, that, what was that abomination? We talked about it over the last two weeks. They were bringing lame, they were bringing blind, they were bringing malformed animals, and the priests were accepting them as worship. They were bringing their second best. And as I said two weeks ago, it wasn't that they had stopped worshiping God. It wasn't that the machinations of the temple weren't continuing. They were. The sacrifices were going on. The only difference is that these people were bringing their second best. They were bringing their junk. They were bringing their garbage. They were bringing God their second best. And they believed that God would be pleased and would gladly accept their second best. And the priests were to blame for this because the priests were accepting it. Nominalism happens when we choose not to give our best. They would never have thought to have brought a pig. They would never have defiled the sanctuary in that way. All they did was bring what was second best. They didn't give their best to the Lord. So let me just reiterate this point. You don't go from missing church or not tithing to riding with the hell's angels in kind of like a week and a half. Like it's a slow, incremental process. But part of that process is getting comfortable with giving God second best. Giving him second best. Giving him second place in our lives. It's so easy to compartmentalize, especially if we don't define ourselves through the, through the context of the church. It's so easy to, to compartmentalize our lives. And we've got our spiritual life, and we've got my married life, and we've got my recreational life, and I've got my, my leisure life, and I've got all these different kind of lives. And I give God a certain amount, a certain amount of time, a certain amount of passion in my spiritual life, but he's sort of absent in the rest of my life. When Jesus slides into second place, suddenly it's so easy for hobbies and other people and other passions, friends, to take first place. And it's not that he's not important. It's just that he's not most important. 
I want you to flip over, go a few pages forward to Matthew chapter 6. One of the ways where you can, where you can see this is in the whole issue of, of money. Now, I've had a couple of people say to me over the last six months, it's kind of neat having been here for six months, because you sort of start getting the regular stuff that pastors get. So somebody said to me, man, somebody just said that, Paul, you're always talking about unity. And I was, because that's a big part of what Ephesians was about, right? That's kind of the, the issue we were dealing with through Ephesians. The one thing I'm happy to say is this, and you'll be happy too, I haven't said anything about money, haven't beat you up about tithing, but on my second last Sunday, I don't want to give this opportunity up. So I want you to look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19, because here Jesus talks about money. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. This is verse 19, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me read that for you again. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They go over to 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Why were these people bringing their second best? Well, you know, a blind, lame animal is worthless. There's no value. They were giving God their seconds. And what this passage of Scripture says is this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you know what? Your heart, your passions, your commitment, your zeal follows your investment. If you invest in the, in the things of God, if you invest in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you invest and sacrifice for those things that are a priority to God, you will cement your heart to those things. That's what Jesus is saying. Where your treasure goes, your heart, your affections, your passions meekly follow along behind. And when you stop giving God your best, when you stop tithing, when you stop sacrificing for his kingdom, when you stop investing your hard-earned money and your life in the kingdom of God, you quickly become dispassionate about the things of God because your heart is fickle. Your heart is fickle. And what Jesus is saying in this passage of Scripture is that where you choose to invest, your heart will follow meekly along behind. And so my challenge to you is this. You can't serve God and, and money. You can't have two masters. Either God is first or he's not. He's, he's first or he's not God in your life. He's first or he's not Lord. It can't be any other way. You can't have two masters. So what the, I believe, this is just my opinion now, other people might argue with me, but I believe that God has called his people to tithe. Why, because God needs our money? Absolutely not. God doesn't need our money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. God is completely and, and totally self-sufficient. So why does he need my meager little bit of money? He needs it so that through my investing in the church, through my sacrificing for the church, I can pin my heart to the body of Christ. That's why I 
You and I are called to tithe. And if that's not a part of your, if that's not a part of your financial planning, that's what I tell my kids when they got married. I said, give the first tenth to the Lord, put the second tenth in the bank, and live on the 80%. If that's not part of your financial strategy, I would ask you to have a hard look at your priorities. Because if God is not number one, if his church is not number one, if his cause in the world is not number one, if his glory is not number one, then he's not Lord. And the way that he becomes number one is that our heart meekly follows our investments. So make a decision to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. Somebody says, well, the Bible doesn't teach, the New Testament doesn't teach tithing. Mm, I don't know. But anyway, they'll say, it teaches sacrificial giving. Well, what is sacrificial giving? Somebody might say, well, I, I make a thousand bucks a week. I spend $990, and I get 10 bucks left, we'll give 50% of that to the Lord. There's five bucks, it's a big sacrifice. That's not sacrificial giving. God wants the first fruits. I believe God wants you to tithe and trust him. And as we do, we pin our heart, we cement our heart to the body of Christ. We cement our heart to the things of God because our heart follows So is Jesus number one in your life? Are you seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trusting that everything else will be added unto you? Thirdly, what they did, back to Malachi, what they, you might be lukewarm, thirdly, if you don't block negative influences. So what was going on here is that these men were divorcing their wives and marrying women from the surrounding cultures. Verse, uh, verse 11, halfway through. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So what was happening is that in the people, the people uh, of Malachi's day, they were divorcing their wives and going looking for wives from the surrounding culture. Now, this has nothing to do with race. This was not about the fact that these women were not Jewish, in the racial sense, Rahab, Ruth, and literally thousands of other women had married into Israel. But the law forbade a Jewish man from marrying a woman who was not a convert to the worship of Yahweh. And that was the problem. So way back, thousand years before this, Deuteronomy chapter 7, God had said this, you shall not intermarry with them, the Canaanites, for they would turn away your sons from following me. The issue there, way back, thousand years before this, was influence. The influence of these foreign women, which was manifest so profoundly in the life of Solomon 500 years before this. He more married foreign wives, and they turned his heart away from God. So the third step we can discern in this passage of Scripture is an uncritical and unwise exposure to negative sinful influences in our lives. You are on your way to being a lukewarm Christian if you don't guard your soul from sinful, influ- sinful influences. Now, obviously, the most immediate application is the, the question about who you marry. Other than the Spirit of God, I, I call Cindy the chief assistant of the Holy Spirit in charge of conviction. That's, her, that's her, one of her titles in my marriage. Chief assistant of the Holy Spirit in charge of conviction. She's good at it, very good at it. But I can tell you, 
as a consequence of being married for almost 40 years, that the most, other than the Spirit of God, the most powerful influence in your life will be that person you marry. And so I want to say this right now to those of you who are not married. The Bible is clear. The Apostle Paul says it clearly in in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that if you marry, marry only in the Lord. Do not marry a non-Christian because it is against God's law, and also it's nuts. If you truly love God, you will marry a spouse, a husband or wife, who is passionate about what you're passionate about. Because it makes absolutely no sense, if you truly love God, to marry somebody who does not because their passions are going to become your passions. Their interests are going to become your interests. You're going to have a divided, conflicted, and an unhappy marriage. You must marry a person who shares your faith because his or her influence will be profound in your life for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Do you hear that? You made, he made a good choice. Very good choice. So that's, that's the most immediate application. But secondly, we know this, again, from 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. Choose your friends wisely. Choose your friends wisely because they will influence you. And I'm not just talking now to the young people. I know friends are really important. Like it was, it's a, it's, parenting is a tough thing. You watch your kids grow up and you're this hero to them until you're about, until their kid's about 13, 14, and then suddenly you're an idiot. And the most important people in the world are their friends. And then at about 22, 23, it suddenly dawns on them. They think, they look at you and like, where did you learn all this stuff over the last four or five years? Dad, you're brilliant again. We are all influenced by the friends, by the people that we hang out with. Choose your friends wisely. Hang out with people who love Jesus. Find friends who are passionate about the kingdom of God, who have a deep walk with Jesus, who are pursuing him more and more and more, who are in the word, who when they talk to you, ask you tough questions about your walk with God. Ask you tough questions about where you are in your spiritual journey. Be that kind of friend. If if we allow people in our lives who bring values that don't support or don't reflect the ethic and the morality of the kingdom of God, they're going to influence us. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't evangelize and we shouldn't have non-Christian friends, but the the influencers in your life should be Christian men and women, should be Christian young people. And then thirdly, the application that I want to draw thirdly, is that, man, we... We just allow, through media, social media, television, movies, we just allow so much ungodly garbage into our heads that influences us without us being aware of it. The reason these guys became nominal, Israel became nominal, was because they were not guarding themselves against influence, the influence of the world. Number four, You may be lukewarm if you're getting comfortable with hypocrisy. And I want to spend a few minutes longer in this one. If you're getting comfortable with hypocrisy. Go over to uh, verse 13. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? And the answer is this, because the Lord has witnessed between you and your wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion. 
and your wife by covenant. So Malachi says to these guys who are divorcing their wives, you're going into the altar. You're going in before God. And you're covering his altar with tears. You're just boo-hooing all over the place. Oh, God, why aren't you answering my prayers? Oh, God, why aren't you showing me mercy? Oh, God, why are my crops not growing? Oh, Lord, why are you not blessing me? And yet, and, and so the Lord says the answer, the answer is because you've been unfaithful to the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to the covenant that you made with her when you were married, when God made you one. Now, it's hard to miss the irony here. It's impossible, actually, to miss the irony here. The men of Israel wanted God to be faithful to them, to fulfill his covenant obligation to them, even though they were unfaithful to their wives and weren't fulfilling their covenant obligation obligation to them. You see how ironic this is? You see how lukewarmness blinds the eyes of people? God has witnessed the vows you made God has made you one, and yet you are abandoning your wife. This disconnect between sin and the naive expectation that God should bless us is, man, it is just a highway to lukewarmness. You know you're sliding into nominalism when you're sincerely, passionately asking God to bless you while you are comfortably disobeying his law. When we feel no compunction about asking God for his grace and his mercy or his favor, while we are happily enjoying sin and carnality, you are well into lukewarmness. I, I, I guess the most simple way I can say this is that we know that we're sliding into lukewarmness and nominalism when we elevate God's grace and diminish his law. When we elevate God's grace and diminish his law. And that's exactly what was happening. Think about it. These guys are walking into the temple bringing, you know, their lame animals. So it's not walking, it's being dragged along, right? They're dragging their second-rate offering because they're not going to give God their best. And they're bringing in their pagan second wife and falling down before God and saying, God, be good to me. God, be gracious to me. God, accept my offering. God, show me your mercy. And they're completely, completely blind to the fact that they are breaking the covenantal relationship or have broken the covenantal relationship with their wife. They had lost sight of who Yahweh was. They had lost sight of his holiness. I think they had reimagined him in their own image, believing that God was like them and they had forgotten about his holiness. And this kind of, this kind of hypocrisy is rampant within evangelicalism today. And it's why so much of evangelicalism is so lukewarm. And we just call it cheap grace. We have no problem running into God's presence. Oh, God, bless me. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, give me this. Oh, God, look after this problem. Oh, God, I need you. While we are living in flagrant disobedience to his word. And it's just cheap grace. And the only way that we get there is because we reimagine God in our image. 
We reimagine him as somehow this tolerant, you know, big, friendly, white bearded guy in the sky who is just all about me. Right? And, and I can understand how you get there. Like, so a lot of people come to Jesus, like they're told, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Instead of being told, God's angry with you and you're going to hell unless you get on your knees and repent. And there's a world of difference when you sort of extrapolate that out. A world of difference. Cheap grace is a lie. It really is. God has called us to be a holy people, a set-apart people, a distinct people, a people who embrace his morality, his ethic, his law. Who give him the best, their best. Right? If Jesus is Savior, he must be Lord. You can't have it the other way around. I don't know a time in church history when this balance, this equilibrium between law and grace has been so completely out of balance. It's, it's almost like today in our culture, we've got this idea that, in, in, you know, the Bible teaches that God is love. He's also just. He's also holy. And I think that the, the key issue is really his holiness. But we've turned it into love is God. Just, just it's all about love. God's just, he's just love and tolerance and acceptance and just, just love. He just loves me. And the truth is that that's a lie. God is love, but he's also wrath. He's holy. He is just. He is righteous. We can't ignore God's law. And so many of us, so many of us feel so comfortable asking God, weeping before God, oh God, help me, while we're considering walking out on our wives, while we're cheating on our taxes, while we're, while we're doing things that are just so flagrantly sinful, and we don't see the disconnect. And if that's, if that's where you are, then we need to repent, folks. We need to repent. Don't presume upon God's grace. Don't just think because, hey, I prayed a prayer. I walked down an aisle, I signed a card, I'm good to go. When God saves somebody, he transforms us from the inside out. And that transformation is a growing passion for holiness and godliness. Fifthly, let me get going here. You may be lukewarm if you forget God's goal in saving you. <clears throat> Verse 15, <clears throat> God asks this, or Malachi asks, did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? There's the question that Malachi asks. What was God's purpose in bringing these men and women together in the covenant family of God? And the answer is godly offspring. You see that? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Why were godly offspring so important? Why did, right at the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Why is it in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, just the chapter before, he tells these guys, don't marry outside the faith. 
Why is it that he says, he gives them the Shema, the Lord our God is one, right? That passage of scripture. And then he says, teach your kids. Invest in them. When you sit down, teach them. When you're walking with them, teach them. When you lie down, when you stand up, teach them. Bind it on your hand, right? Put it on your forehead. Put it on the doorposts of your house. Let it all be about communicating to the next generation the truth of who God is. Tell them about Egypt. Tell them about the sacrifice. Tell them about the Passover. Talk to them about who God is. Because God knows that that we are one generation away from extinction. One generation away from extinction. That's why it's so troubling. I read an article yesterday. 70% of kids who are raised in, and this is in the States. I don't know what it's like in Canada. I guess it's similar. 70% of the kids who are raised in evangelical churches walk away from the faith. Like, that's heartbreaking. And why is it so devastating? Because we're one generation away from extinction. God doesn't have grandkids, right? He's got children. God's plan was that through godly offspring, Israel would grow and expand and fill the land, and the kingdom of God would come in Canaan. And evil would be jettisoned, and righteousness would be seen throughout the kingdom. But these kids were being born into divided families. These kids were being born into families that were, where at least one parent didn't know God, didn't care about the story of God's salvation. As a consequence, God's, and this is important, as a consequence, God's goals for his people were being thwarted. God wanted godly offspring for the next generation. And so here's the thing. You know that you have slid pretty far into lukewarmness when you have no passion for seeing God's goals accomplished in our world, when you are not interested in seeing God's goals accomplished in our world, when raising your kids to love God is just one of the many things you have to do and it's not the most important thing that you're doing with those kids, you have fallen into lukewarmness. When you have no strategy to share your faith with other people, to talk about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with other people, you have slidden into lukewarmness. When missions doesn't matter to you one iota, you have become lukewarm. Right? We're, we're not building a physical kingdom in a particular location in the world. We're building God's spiritual kingdom that is to fill the world. The knowledge of the Lord is going to f- cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Christ is going to build his church, and the gates of hell can't stop him. Revelation tells us that around the throne of God, one day there will be people from every tribe and nation and language and people, color, ethnicity, because the kingdom of God is an unstoppable force. That's who Christians are. That's what Christians do. That's what motivates us. That's what encourages us to get out of bed in the morning. We are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ, pleading with people to come to Christ. Raising up the next generation, teaching our children, sharing with our neighbors, talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ every time and any time God gives us an opportunity to open our mouths. But if that doesn't light your fire, if that is not a vision that you have for your life, if you don't think about that, you don't pray about that, 
you become lukewarm. How is your life advancing the kingdom of God? We've got to have, we got to have a goal. A goal to share the gospel. And the goal isn't achieved by accident. It's accomplished through deliberate, purposeful planning. So I encourage you. If you don't want to be lukewarm, begin to pray and begin to ask God to show you how you can share the gospel. Might be with your kids. Might be with your adult kids. Might be with your neighbors. But pray and ask God for an opportunity to share the gospel. Because it's critical that you do. And lastly, very quickly, you know you're slipping into lukewarmness when you leave your heart unguarded. Look what he says. Verse 15 at the end there. So guard yourself in your spirit. Then have you be faithless to the wife of your, of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord of the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Now the translation says that God hates divorce. NASB says it that way. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. A lot of us folks have unguarded hearts. We live in a culture right now that just says follow your heart. Where the, where the heart is king. Do what your heart tells you to do. That's just, that's just garbage. Don't do what your heart tells you to do. Do what the Word of God tells you to do. Don't follow your heart. Why? Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Folks, if you follow your heart, you'll be like, I used to have a little dog in a big yard, and I would watch my dog out at night kind of just wandering aimlessly through his journey to find a spot to relieve himself before he came back in to go to bed. And, I, and I've often thought about that as a picture of so many people's lives. God sets them down, he saves them, and then just wander, just following whatever, sniffing, following, following their heart. I want this, I want to get that, I want to do this thing. I want. And they just sort of aimlessly wander through life and accomplish nothing for God's glory and for his kingdom. And so many other things become passion. They don't guard their affections falling in love with all kinds of other things, falling in love with other women, falling in love with money, falling in love with their career, falling in love with the next thing. Guard your heart. So I said at the beginning, nominalism, unfaithfulness, and lukewarmness are arrived at by a series of seemingly inconsequential events. How How did the church of Laodicea get there? I don't know. I don't know. But the last, the last church that Jesus spoke to was the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. And then he says this, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be jealous and repent. Cliff at the beginning of the, before the service began, he said, Lord, let it not be about guilt. And, I, and I, in my heart I said amen, because I don't want you to feel guilty and I want you to feel beat up today. But I want you to know that if you need to repent, now is the time to do it. Becoming lukewarm is a series of incremental decisions that arrive you at a destination that sometimes you're not even aware you're at. And if this morning the Spirit of God has kind of woken you up and said, you know what, in that area, in that area, I've become lukewarm and I need to change, I want you to hear this. I want you to guard your heart. 
Listen to what the Spirit of God says to the people of God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. See, the Lord, that's not written to non-Christians. That's written to us, folks. It's written to people like you and me who so easily become dispassionate about the things of God, who so easily make the church and God second in our lives, who allow influences to impact us that shouldn't impact us, who get comfortable with hypocrisy. The Lord's saying to us this morning, I'm here and I'm knocking. And if something the preacher has said this morning has impacted you, all you need to do is just get down on your face before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I see. I've wandered. I'm coming home. Because that's what the cross is all about, right? Jesus died for sinners like you and me. God punished him. God poured out his wrath upon his son. And his son bled and died so that in moments like this, we could just say, okay, Lord, I'm coming back. I'm sorry. I'm coming home. So if something I have said this morning has touched you, if one of these six things has impacted you, as, as Cliff and Sydney lead us, I just want you to sit quietly and repent. Hear the Lord knocking and come home. And he'll receive you. He loves you. He died for you. He stands at the door right now and knocks. So open the door. Let him in. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you that you love those, or you discipline those whom you love. You speak hard things into our lives sometimes in order to make us make hard decisions. Lord, some of us here this morning have made small incremental steps in the wrong direction. And we've realized that, you know what, we are a little lukewarm. And so we need to take one significant big step back home. And that's the step of repentance. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would knock and knock loudly as my brother and sister sing for us. And I pray that you would just incline the hearts of your people to open the door and that you would just burst into their lives anew and afresh, kind of like you did when you converted them, Lord. Give them a passion for you, a deep love for you again. Help them to reorder their lives in a way that would cause them to be on fire for Christ and for his kingdom and for his gospel, I pray. We ask this for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.